must understand that when we are raising children, uh, especially in regards to the education system, it is crucially important that we are paving the way for a, a more respectful and more diverse, more, more uh, a more welcoming system across the, the board. Because only then, when we start the priority stages, can we hopefully build a, a better future. You're listening to episode 63 of the National Secular Society podcast produced by Emma Park. In Northern Ireland, a groundbreaking case on the right to a pluralistic education is currently awaiting judgment by the court. The case involves a judicial review of the Department of Education's policy on collective worship and religious education. The case is being brought by the father of a seven-year-old girl. The family is non-religious, but after the girl had been at primary school in Belfast, her father discovered that she had started praying late at night. This led him to investigate the way in which the school undertook collective worship, and from there to delve into the way it taught religious education as well. He found that both the religious education provision and the school assemblies were heavily proselytising, with the intention not just of teaching Christianity, but of inculcating students with its doctrines to the exclusion of all other worldviews. When the school refused to offer him a satisfactory alternative for his daughter, or any other effective remedy, he turned to the courts. For this episode, I'm going to be joined by Dara Mackin, a solicitor who was instructed by the girl's father to bring a judicial review both of the Department of Education in Northern Ireland and of the school which implemented these policies. And just before I begin the interview, I would like to wish you, the listeners, on behalf of us all at the National Secular Society, a very Merry Christmas and all the best for 2022, whatever it may bring. I'm joined now by Dara Mackin. Dara is a partner and head of public law in inquests and inquiries at Phoenix Law, which is a firm of solicitors in Belfast that specialises in human rights law. Dara Mackin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Emma. So let's start with the uh, the background to this case and, and the way it happened. So as reported in the Irish News, the girl involved is aged seven. So the family is bringing the case on her behalf. She's at a controlled primary school, which means a Protestant school in Northern Ireland. Um, and we also have Catholic maintained schools. So we've got that um, distinction. Why is the family bringing this case in the first place? How did it come about? I think the starting point, um, which is important to emphasize, is that um, obviously the, the background in particular, the, the, the religious impact uh, in Northern Ireland in particular is worth emphasising. Uh, unfortunately, there is a very difficult and troubled past, which unfortunately has too often been uh, related to uh, religious division in, in the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland. On an occasion a number of years ago, the child at the centre of this uh, case returned home from school uh, and began praying late at night. Her father was uh, deeply concerned as to uh, why she has learned or where she had learned to pray in this way and took the took it upon himself uh, to visit the school to inquire as to why his child was being brought up in this way. Now, his, his reason for doing so was very simple. He, he believes firmly in you know reconciliation and moving forward in Northern Ireland. And his view, quite rightly, is that when we have a situation whereby children from a very early age are, in, are, are indoctrinated uh, in a manner which they are effectively are raised as Catholic or Protestant, it only seeks to continue d- d- divisive culture. It only seeks to continue with division. And he was deeply concerned about this approach. That prompted him to ask that the school would consider not raising his child in this way. He wanted his child to be raised in a way that was multicultural, respected all religions, didn't identify as any particular religious uh, belief. For the obvious uh, and and the, the, the reason that I mentioned, 
that he believes firmly in uh, that in, if Northern Ireland is to progress in a, in, a, in a way consistent with what the European Court of Human Rights has even said, uh, and in a way that is uh, respectful of everybody's religion and cultural beliefs, it is essential that we do not have children raised in this way. This concern was met with the school's approach, which uh, simply was to flag that um, they had no alternative, that the law mandated the school to have uh, an act of worship and that they simply uh, were following that law and that they had effectively no alternative. Now, on closer inspection, um, when when the father in this case sought legal advice, it became clear that not only was there, and still is, a provision in law which mandates an act of worship, but it, in fact it goes much further. And the, there is a, a syllabus in play which effectively has at its heart a very narrow focus on uh, religion and has at its centre what we would say is uh, analogous to indoctrination in Christianity, uh, which in many ways is detrimental to what we would say the respect for the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, when all of that became clear, um, the father in this case uh, began legal proceedings. Uh, the proceedings are twofold. Uh, they were initiated against the Department of Education. Uh, the reason for that being that obviously the department are the ones responsible for the legislation in question. And secondly, against the school uh, as an effectively an alternative. Now, what we say is that if we are wrong, that the law isn't incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, then the school should not be bound to act in that way and should have acted in a way that respects the child's human rights and shouldn't have followed or have been constrained by the legislation in question. So, yeah, it, it started off, in other words, um, the whole thing started from the fact that she was, um, the girl was praying, which was a result of the requirement for an act of collective worship every school day um, in Northern Ireland. But then um, the father found out that it was also a matter of the way religious education was taught in the school as well. That, that, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, and, and I should say, on closer inspection, it became clear that, that this is not anything new. Uh, it became clear that... <laughs> In fact, for a number of years, a number of public bodies have, in fact, expressed concern about this approach. Now, one such concern was the Equality Commission in 2006. Uh, Northern Ireland expressed concerns about the lack of equality for non-Christian faiths and that the specific uh, you know, secular traditions that were, that were in place and how they would adversely affect those um, who effectively were not from the Christian denomination. Uh, and further than that, the, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission uh, had flagged their concerns and the number of academics from uh, a local leading university, Queen's University, Belfast, had also expressed concerns about this approach. So it was clear that these concerns were not uh, in any way ill-founded uh, and required closer in consideration and indeed consideration and review by the High Court. Mm-hmm. But um, a- as we stand, um, the current law is the law that's been in place for presumably quite a long time. Yes, the, the law has been in place since 1986. In fact, specifically, Article 21 is the, the, the provision we're talking about here, which uh, effectively means that in grant-dated schools, um, in every school day, uh, there should be an act of worship, um, whether in assembly or uh, as part of a class or, or a programme. Now, what, what, what the problem that, are, that arises from this provision is that there is effectively no remedy. The only remedy that exists is this, that the child, if, if the child so wishes or the child or the parent expresses a concern, the child can be removed from the classroom. 
or, or the assembly. Now, the reality of that is that that, has, that that is the very essence of the problem. What we then seek to do is we seek to exclude, we seek to punish the child in question, we seek to effectively identify that child as different by simple by the very simple fact that they wish to opt out of uh, worship of this king. Mm. So no child, especially a young child, is, is going to want to just be taken out of the class from the rest of their, their classmates. Exactly, and, and it's, it's, it's the heart of the problem. It's then uh, what we have is uh, that the child is opting out, the child is being excluded. And I have to say, even more concerning than that, uh, in the preparation for this case, we undertook a, a review of the, the specific provisions that would be feasible in other schools if you wish to opt out in one school. Uh, alarmingly, uh, the if the child decided to opt out or be excluded, they would be, during that period in time, minded by the local vicar, which in itself, the, the irony can't be lost. And in this case, in defending the proceedings, the respondent sought to suggest that one such potential alternative in excluding the child would be that the, the child could hand out the, the milk and, and, and cookies whilst the other children pray. Now, that in itself, again, the irony cannot be lost, that it's uh, in some ways that the child is being punished by virtue of the fact who uh, they seek to be uh, excluded from the act of worship in question. And I think that, in my view, epitomises all of the real concerns that we have here. So when you were doing a, a wider review for the purpose of preparing your case, what else did you find in, in schools in Northern Ireland in terms of this sort of indoctrination, religious instruction approach, uh, proselytizing approach to the way um, religion is taught? A number of uh, number of uh, issues arose. Now, um, the first uh, theme that we definitely uh, identified unequivocally was that um, individuals of uh, no faith or individuals of uh, a specific background felt very much discriminated uh, and felt that they were not being treated equally as others. However, the second consistent theme was that parents felt that they were effectively in a rock and a hard place because if you were seen to seek to exclude your child, if you were seen to having to protest as to the uh, position, you were effectively the one who was putting your head on the pedestal. You were the one who was effectively seeking to be you know, almost the troublemaker. You were the one who was effectively excluding your child. You were the one who was removing your children from their classroom, their friends. And it became a, it was quite clear that it was inconsistent that this is not, this is not a new issue. However, what had, what had happened for a number of years is that parents were quite rightly concerned about identifying this as a major problem by virtue of the fact that they were, they, they ultimately feared that their child would be punished as a result. Now, punished indirectly, maybe, but the reality, it's still, it's still the child is the one who still suffers the consequences. So what we found as well is that there was a consistent theme of parents who had, over many years, in fact, raised concerns, but didn't, in fact, ever advance those concerns to any, any further because they were deeply concerned by the potential consequences. The third issue that came to light early on in these proceedings was that there was potentially a, a remedy that you could seek to complain about the curriculum. If you, you know, decided to take, take issue with the curriculum or syllabus, you had the right to have a tribunal convened to debate and consider the issues that arose. Now, in reality, there was no realistic way that a tribunal of this kind could ever address an issue such as this, whereby we are talking about the enforcement of law. And we're not only talking about the enforcement of law, we're talking about the enforcement of the Human Rights Act and whether or not legislation is compatible with the Human Rights Act. 
Now, that in itself is a deeply complex legal issue. We say it could never be resolved by a tribunal of that kind, which is effectively made up by uh, board of governors, lay members, uh, ex-teachers. It just simply wasn't fit for purpose of an issue of this nature. And indeed, that, that was reflective of the fact that that tribunal had never been asked to consider this issue. Right, and so, so that would be um, a, a school tribunal, effectively. Uh, absolutely, that's exactly what it is. Okay, and and so what you're saying is that for these issues, there was no effective remedy for the parents. So parents, for a number of years, had just been forced to watch their child being indoctrinated without being able to do anything about it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So on on the religious education point, I mean, how is religious education taught in in a controlled primary school like the one that the girl is at? And and how is it taught in a proselytizing way? So in in essence, um, the core syllabus uh, is produced uh, in accordance with um, what's known as Article 11 of the 2006 order. That effectively means the Department of Education produces a core RE syllabus. Now, that syllabus um, includes what, what we what we refer to as key stages one, two, uh, which relate to basically primary school education. Now, that syllabus is produced in conjunction with the Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Church of Ireland, and the Methodist Church. Now, it's worth pausing there to note the very obvious reality that the syllabus, even the, the production of the syllabus is exclusively Christian. The, 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 the constitution process is exclusively, exclusively Christian and the content of the syllabus produced for primary school children is exclusively Christian. Now, there are a number of examples throughout the syllabus on any closer inspection that depicts the exclusive Christian reality of the situation. N- number of, um, for example, references to the, the revelation of God, the talking to God, the thanking of God, the praising of God, um, that you know, pupils should be encouraged to um, develop uh, respect for God, all of those issues. Now, what is what is obvious in the, in the examination is that reference to other religions, which are referred to concerningly as world religions, do not even feature until key stage three, which is years eight, nine, and ten. Yeah, so that's. GCSE, almost getting to GCSE level there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, you know, you don't, you, so what we have a situation is if a, a child, until they're effectively 11 or 12 at the earliest, will not even know about other religions, not be taught about other religions, and will, when they do, they'll be referred to as world religions, which in itself, in my view, like I say, epitomizes the concern of the situation. And so, sorry, I should say that the core syllabus has absolutely no reference at all, in any shape or form, to non-religious beliefs, which again is indicative of the fact that the syllabus in question is exclusively focused upon uh, Christianity. Now, that is um, many ways uh, exacerbated then by the fact that depending upon the school in which you go to will depend upon the focus of the uh, religious education and religious act of worships. Now, as has been referenced here, this is a controlled school, Therefore, the act of worship was effectively Protestant religion um, and, you know, vice versa. Uh, if, if, a, if a child attends at a Catholic school, the religious education uh, imposed will be that of uh, Catholicism. So we, we say that, you know, on any inspection here, uh, the underlying legislative provisions, which give rise not only to the act of worship, but give a rise to the core syllabus, are flagrantly in breach of the European Convention on Human Rights. 
I, as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, there are um, some integrated schools in Northern Ireland which try to sort of combine um, people of different denominations. In, in the case of this girl, was there any other choice for another school she could have gone to or is there simply not that available possibility? There are um, integrated education uh, or integrated schools now in Northern Ireland. I should say that um, it, it, they are in many ways, though, still at their infancy. In, in terms of numbers uh, and uh, presence, in terms of uh, uh, controlled schools or, or, or Catholic um, schools. So whilst there it does exist integrated schools in Northern Ireland, it is a very much, we, well, we have a long way to go before we have uh, effectively a widespread integrated uh, system in my view. Now, the, the reality of the situation is that even if that were a possible remedy here, we would say that that doesn't answer the problem. But the problem is that we, unlike anywhere else uh, on the, in the island of Ireland or um, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, we have a situation whereby the syllabus is unduly narrow. Uh, and we say that that is the equivalent of what is in essence uh, indoctrination of children from an early age. So irrespective of, even if we have integrated education now uh, in a manner that is progressing, thankfully progressing, it isn't uh, in any way, unfortunately, the solution to the problem. Is, is the Republic of Ireland, do they have a better system for encouraging pluralism? It's not as narrow or restrictive as the system in the north. Like I say, when we began analysing this case, we not only looked at the Republic of Ireland, we looked much closer, to be frank, at England, Wales and Scotland, and it was clear on any analysis that uh, the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland system was by far the most restrictive. Just if we're talking in terms of proportions, I mean, are there any statistics on, on the proportion of um, people in, in Northern Ireland who are not Christian? So the, the, the statistics that uh, were reviewed um, did indicate that the proportions more broadly um, are quite low uh, of uh, non-religious uh, or, or other religious beliefs. Um, however, what we would say is that again, unfortunately, that is not reflective of the reality. I say that based upon two uh, factors. The first one being that again, we enter the same problem. We are requesting parents to identify at an early stage uh, the, the, what, uh, religious, or what religious belief they are, uh, what faith they come from. In circumstances in which um, it may again force identity on or force to, uh, the question of identity in a situation where it is deeply unfair. Now, there are a number of reasons why people uh, either avoid that question or answer that question in a specific way, uh, depending upon the manner in which it is asked. Now, I, that may seem like a strange answer, but unfortunately, the reality of the situation in Northern Ireland is that we have, like I say, a very complex backdrop. A very complex history, which gives rise to all, in which, unfortunately, and it's deeply regrettable, religion did play a part, and for that reason, there are that question is unfortunately not a simple one that cannot be answered, uh, kind of in a very straightforward manner. The second issue here that arises um, is that, irrespective of the proportion that we are dealing with here, it is essentially important that when we are entering into a situation where we're trying to promote diversity more broadly, it is essential that irrespective of the proportion, 
that the education system, and the religious education system in particular, has respect for all denominations and all beliefs, because only then, irrespective of the proportion, will those who maybe fall within the minority feel comfortable to maybe identify as a minority in circumstances in which it may not have been so easy to do so before. And I say that, and I reference the earlier point that I made, which is that you know, when we look at the simple situation as to how many parents take issue with this provision, but yet the very low proportion who have ever done anything about it, that in itself is, in my view, indicative of the complex backdrop here. It's indicative of the fact that people are uh, quite naturally nervous about entering into a territory of identity or religious identity in particular. And would it would it be fair to say that with, with the identification as Protestant or Catholic, that's not just a matter of religion, but also very much bound up with sort of cultural or political affiliations? Exactly. That's exactly right. Unfortunately, um, like I say, when, I'm, when I reference religion being tied into the, the complex history of, of this jurisdiction, it is tied into deep cultural traditions and deep political traditions, um, which again uh, form a huge part of the divide in this jurisdiction. Now, it is uh, with comfort, I think, that the divide has narrowed, that we are in a process of reconciliation, but that requires uh, you know, a continuous effort on an almost daily basis. Uh, we continue to live in a, in a system, for example, that has power sharing at its centre in, in our executive. Those issues are not uh, ordinary. They're complex. They're novel. They, they do require an element of sensitivity. They need to be approached in a sensitive manner. And with that all in consideration, we must understand that when we are raising children, uh, especially in regards to the education system, it is crucially important that we are paving the way for a, a more respectful and more diverse, more, more uh, a more welcoming system uh, across the, the board. Because only then, when we start uh, at the very early stages, can we hopefully build a, a better future. But if we have, say, a seven-year-old girl who's already been taught to pray, even though that's not part of what her family does, um, that's already sort of pushing her in one direction, pushing her to identify as a Protestant, sort of reinforcing those divisions. That is exactly at the centre of this case. That is exactly what prompted this father to take this action, because he was concerned that his daughter was being indoctrinated from an early stage and indeed entrenching the division which he did not want to be part of. He firmly believes, for all of the right reasons, that there should be a more welcoming, uh, a more uh, open uh, society whereby we respect other cultures, we respect other religions. And if we are indoctrinating children from this early age, it will only seek to entrench the division. So what are the principles of human rights law um, which the family relies on in this case? We rely uh, almost exclusively at the outset on um, what's known as Article 2, Protocol 1, which is obviously the right to education um, uh, under the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, in addition to that, we, we do make a number of other arguments, such as um, Article 9, which uh, is the right to religious uh, and freedom of thought. We rely on Article 14, that an individual should be uh, free from discrimination. And we rely on Article 8, which is obviously the right to private life and family life. However, the thrust of the argument falls within what's, what's known as Article 2 of the First Protocol, or, or A2P1. Now, what we say is that that uh, jurisprudence um, makes it, firstly, unequivocally clear that a person shouldn't be denied access to education, and that that education, when it's being provided, must be uh, in a manner that is respectful of a pluralistic approach. It is effectively impermissible 
to have a situation we say under the European Convention of Human Rights, which exclusively promotes the Christian religion. Absolutely. So, yeah, and, and just for, for listeners, um, the, the right to education in Article 2 and um, Protocol 1 um, of the European Convention on Human Rights says no person shall be denied the right to education in the exercise of any functions which it assumes in relation to education and to teaching. The state shall respect the right of parents to ensure such education and teaching in conformity with their own religious and philosophical convictions. So, I mean, presumably here, right, in, in, in this article, the state has has a duty to to respect what what parents want as well, perhaps as children, in terms of um, the way that the religious or philosophical convictions that um, their children should be brought up in. They do, and you know, when we look closer at the uh, jurisprudence or the, the case law arising from the European Court of Human Rights, we see that we can adopt a number of principles. Now, one such example is there's a case called uh, Lazzi or, or uh, versus Italy. What that case and the line, it's worth reading, you know, school children have the right to education in a form which respects their right to believe or not to believe. Now, those last four words are crucial, or not to believe. Therefore, the European Court has made it clear the education that's being provided is not only and should not only be consistent with um, an individual's religious belief, but it also should be consistent with their right not to believe. Now, that, again, is indicative of the fact that it makes uh, a number of references throughout the, the jurisprudence that there must be this neutral and there must be an impartial education system whereby which respects various religious beliefs and faiths. Now, what, what, what we say is that the, the, the court actually goes much further than that. Uh, it makes it clear that the uh, system in place should not uh, have an influence on pupils that the, the role of the state uh, in, in providing religious education should be in tolerance of what is effectively a democratic society, uh, particularly when there are opposing groups, as we have here. Now, that, that goes, again, much further than, like I say, a, a narrow situation. Um, the, the position uh, is much the same, uh, that uh, there must be a respect for a parent's religious and philosophical convictions. It's not exclusively the child. So, for example, if the parent has a specific view or, or, or belief, then again, that must be taken into consideration. So, so we say that the, the reality is on, on any inspection of the uh, European Court jurisprudence, it, it is effectively clear that the court has, um, uh, has held that there must be a safeguard, there must be a safety net for ensuring pluralism in education. And we say that that safety net simply does not exist in Northern Ireland. Uh, and what specifically um, does the family want to achieve by this case? What What are you asking the Department of Education to do? Well, we seek a number of remedies. Now, the first one and the primary one is that we seek what's called a declaration of incompatibility. Now, what that is, is effectively, if a piece of legislation is incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, then a court can duly order that a specific provision is incompatible. Now, what that means is when legislation is, is enacted that's contrary to human rights, the court can issue uh, an order which effectively says this provision is incompatible. It cannot be compatible with an individual's human rights. Now, ordinarily, if a DOA or a declaration of incompatibility is issued, um, the Secretary of State must take remedial action if we are talking about primary legislation. However, we are not just talking about primary legislation, we are talking about secondary legislation here, which means that the court can in fact go further 
and it can deem that the legislation in question is effectively unlawful. Now, we say that that is the centre of this case. We say that that is the reality of the situation. We say that the law that we have mentioned earlier is not compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. And if that is the case, and if we are right about that, then the court should proceed to issue a declaration of incompatibility. If, if it's secondary legislation, would would that legislation then have to be struck out and, and new new regulations put in? It would immediately require uh, remedy action, uh, which would be that the legislation is therefore incompatible and therefore there must be steps taken to remedy the incompatibility. Um, there is a second strand, like I say, that uh, if we are wrong about all of that, if we are wrong about all of that, then in the alternative we say that the school um, has not acted in a manner which is consistent with the Human Rights Act. Uh, and that the school should therefore be deemed to have, have acted unlawfully in contravention of the Human Rights Act. But I, I should say there's, a, there's also a third strand of this case, which is, again, to some degree, unique to Northern Ireland, which is uh, under Section 75 uh, of the Northern Ireland Act, there is a provision uh, which requires that the, uh, the departments, the ministers, must act in a way that's consistent with equality. It must effectively give rise and duly promote equality within uh, this jurisdiction. What we say is there is absolutely no way can it be deemed to say that the situation and the system in its current format promotes equality. It simply does not. That is not only us saying this, it's not only our clients saying this, it is the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland, the public body responsible for assessing equality and promotion of equality, has already said it in 2006. Yet, despite their concerns, effectively, um, 15 years ago, no steps have been taken to resolve the problem. So we say that even if we are wrong about the European Convention uh, arguments, we are right about the Section 75, that the steps have not been taken with regards to uh, the promotion of equality, and we would seek an order from the court to that effect. Okay. Um, and on that point of... of promoting equality specifically within the context of Northern Ireland. Now, um, as reported in, in the Irish Times, Ben Jaffe QC um, for, for the applicants on behalf of the family, he stressed that the aim was not to bring about um, a secularised system of education as such in Northern Ireland. Now, why did he need to stress this? The reality is that um, it is a consistent debate on a daily basis now, unfortunately, about courts going too far. The, the reality of the situation, what we are asking for here is we are asking for a court to intervene. Now, a court, uh, as you can imagine, is always going to be reticent about taking a step that will have such a widespread uh, impact. Now, the point that we sought to stress is that all we seek from the court at this stage is to make the necessary orders. It is thereafter for the responsible bodies to take note of what the court has said and to take the respective action. Now, the reason why we said is because in cases such as this, and when again, when I reference the the, the, con, the, the the contentious and complex backdrop to this jurisdiction, cases such as this can often be misinterpreted. They can be misunderstood. Now, I think that's indicative of the fact that our clients have had to seek anonymity to ensure that, the, that their privacy is respected by virtue of putting their head in the parapet in this instance. It is important that the approach, the requirement, the steps that we are asking the court to take is not misunderstood or misrepresented. We say that the remedy here is that the current regime is incompatible with the convention and indeed incompatible with the need to uh, have due regard for equality. 
but it is thereafter for the uh, public body, the Department of Education, to take the necessary steps to resolve the problem. And in taking those necessary steps to resolve the problem, it must have due regard to what the court says. So you're you're trying to make sure that there is the appropriate separation of powers between the the, the judicial arm of, of the state and the um, executive and legislative body. So you want to ensure that the court declares that there's an incompatibility, but then it's up to the actual Department of Education to decide what the rem- the appropriate thing to do should be. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So what were the arguments made by the Department of Education and then the school in resisting this application? At the outset, the, the, the main thrust of the um, department's response is that they say the, um, the, the system is, in essence, uh, compatible with the convention. They say so on the basis of a number of factors, uh, the first being that um, by key stage three, uh, the uh, child will uh, begin to learn about other religions, and therefore that there's no nothing nothing to see, there's no problem here. Uh, the second this issue they say is that and their main argument is that um, when there is a provision to which you can exclude the child, to which the, the child can be exempted from the act of worship in question, there is no nothing further the school needs to do because that is the remedy to the problem. So therefore, they say, in summary, that the exemption principle or the the ability to exclude the child is the solution to all of the problems. It is the solution to the deficiencies. And if a parent or child has a specific belief, that is catered for in the ability to be excluded. Another uh, argument that was advanced uh, was, as I I touched upon earlier, that there is a a tribunal in force um, or in play that um, can review concerns about a curriculum and therefore, that if the issues that arose, uh, uh, or, or the, if the issues had any substance that the tribunal in question could examine, and indeed would have upheld that the syllabus was uh, improperly construed. Now, what we say is that each of those skittles can easily be knocked down. Um, the, the first uh, uh, argument about exclusion of a child, we say, does not meet muster. It does not, on any assessment, it does not survive scrutiny. The reality is, as I have touched upon earlier, it is simply unfair and indeed borderline uh, ridiculous to assert that this, the solution to this problem would be to further punish the child in a manner that either excludes them uh, or not only excludes them, but potentially, as we've seen in this case, being put forward in open court, that the child could be given some other task, such as handing out the milk and cookies as a solution to the problem. We said that, that only further uh, undermines diversity, it only further undermines uh, the, the need to have a pluralistic and open approach. As for the argument about um, uh, potential for a tribunal to assess it, as I've said already, we're talking about a very complex issue here with regards to the assessment of a compa- uh, whether a provision is compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. We're talking about the assessment and review of jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. It is simply ridiculous to assert that a tribunal that is in essence um, uh, combined by lay members and ex-teachers or a teacher of the school could in any way assess the reality of the legal position. We said this is only a situation that can be resolved by a court. Sure and I mean 
does the family have any views as, as to what they think would be a better way of doing things in terms of collective worship or in terms of the approach to religious education? Would, would they want children who are not religious to do something else during that period or would they just want everyone together to do do something that's not religious or not proselytizing? Like I say, I think the, the reality is that um, it, it is ultimately uh, a matter for the Department of Education, how they solve this problem. But I think what we, what we would say is there are a number of obvious solutions. The first one being that um, the, the syllabus in question should, from its very outset, from its very inception, have respect in an equal manner for all religious beliefs and non-religious beliefs. Children should be educated in a manner that is consistent with the reality. They should be educated in a manner that respects other traditions, other beliefs. And whether a family seek to raise their child as a specific religious religious uh, or denomination or non-religious, they are absolutely entitled to do so. But that should be entirely separate to what is the provision of education in a school. It is an entirely separate matter. So what we say is the first obvious step that can be taken is to ensure that the syllabus from an early stage respects all traditions, all beliefs and all non-beliefs. The second situation is that we say, if the act of worship must remain, we say that it is a manner in which should be an opt-in, not an opt-out solution. Therefore, if a school wishes to offer an act of worship by premised upon the nature of the school's background, then they are entitled to do so. However, they should do so in a manner which is simply opting in. In the same way you could potentially opt in for extracurricular activities, such as football or basketball, you opt in for that extracurricular activity, as it were. It should not be an opt-out provision. And then people who didn't opt in wouldn't feel that they were sort of strange exceptions to, to the rules. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and when is judgment, when are you expecting judgment to be handed down? So the, the case happened at the end of no, in the last week or so of November. What, what's, the, what's the timeline from now? So the case was heard on the 22nd to 23rd November, and at the conclusion of the case, uh, Mr. Justice Colton, uh, Senior Judicial Review Judge in Belfast, indicated that he hoped to give judgment as soon as possible. Now, with a case of this complexity, um, I think that um, we would hope that we would see judgment um, within three, the three-month time uh, frame, which is kind of the ordinary time frame given for the passing of a judgment. Uh, however, obviously, given the nature of this case, it wouldn't be un, uh, unheard of that it would run beyond that three-month period. But we are hopeful that we would see a judgment before effectively the end of February. If your application is refused, will you appeal? We will absolutely appeal. And we will, we will appeal on the basis that we say that the authorities are clear and that the authorities are clear from the European Court of Human Rights, right up until the highest uh, chamber in the European Court of Human Rights, the Grand Chamber. We say those cases make it unequivocally clear that our argument is right. And in line with the uh, Human Rights Act, uh, the court should duly give effect to the application of those cases uh, and ensure that the legislation is deemed incompatible. So we will appeal if we lose. Have there been any um, other judicial review cases similar to yours before brought on this issue, or is yours the first one? We are unaware of any single case that has ever been brought in this jurisdiction on this issue. And it is deeply depressing, as I've said earlier, that we have a situation whereby complaints from public bodies have been made for quite some time from universities, from the Human Rights Commission to the Equality Commission, yet no case has ever been brought. Um, so it is unfortunate that this is the first case. However, I hope 
that it is the first and the last case insofar as I hope that it proves to be the solution uh, to, to what is, unfortunately, a, a major problem. So uh, for, as a final question then on that point, if your case succeeds, if your um, application um, is, is accepted, what will there be and what will the ramifications be for um, education in Northern Ireland? I think it's fair to say um, that this would have a widespread impact. Um, the reality is what we are challenging here is the provision of education across the jurisdiction. That in itself, ob for obvious reasons, comes with widespread consequences. Uh, and, and, and I think that it is fair to say that if we are successful um, uh, on the grounds at which we have pleaded, uh, it will have an impact upon the delivery of education right across this jurisdiction uh, in, in, a, in a manner that will effectively impact all uh, schools uh, in, in that insofar as the order applied, the order currently in force applies to everyone. So to say that this will have a widespread impact is probably an understatement. So definitely something to be watching out for in the next few months then. Derek Mackin, thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.